Happy New Year. I was so excited last week to wake up and preach on Christmas morning. And uh, double treat, I get to wake up, I got to wake up this morning and preach on New Year's Day. Love it. And, uh, and again, I, I get to find out what y'all look like on New Year's Day. You look awesome. All right. Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. When you find that, please stand with me. We're going to read God's Word. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do what I think is probably the best thing to do on New Year's Day, and that's to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ and his true identity, the, the true identity of Christ. We're going to read Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word, and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to open it up and to read it and now to to hear it and to consider it and to, to be affected by it. Thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful, Lord. Thank you that, that you are here with us and thank you that, that you are going to do something amongst us and in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would, would, would get us out of the way, that we would truly see your glory today, that we would truly see Christ's identity and work and, and respond accordingly. We pray, Lord, that, that amidst all the confusion that exists about who Jesus Christ is, that you would give us a clear, clear picture and then a firm, firm resolve to confess his name in every place that we go. And we commit ourselves to you and this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, the true identity of Jesus Christ has been debated for centuries. A lot of people get him wrong. A lot of people got him right. And the truth about Christ is revealed to all who believe. It's revealed by God to all who believe. Jesus Christ is Christianity. God is the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, God himself. In the words of Peter, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there is no more important confession of faith that we can make. No more important profession that can be made. See, to know Jesus is to understand what gets revealed in this passage, which is his person, but also, moving on from this passage to the very next passage, his work. 
his work on the cross based upon who he is. That's what's being highlighted here in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Today, I want you to see why it's important to confess Christ. I want you to see why it is so crucial that we confess the true identity of Jesus. And then I want you to also see the difference it makes. The difference confessing Christ makes in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and and around this globe. That's the idea that I want to get across today. We've got to set the context. If you've been with us all the way through our, our study in Matthew's Gospel as we've gone verse by verse... It's been about three years now that get us to this place. But we don't just get airlifted into Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20 today. We, we come in a, in a flow of, of the context of the, the gospel of Matthew and also the context of this chapter. You could say that this chapter and this passage is the high point in the gospel of Matthew. It is that important. It is that crucial. Because in this chapter 16, we have a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. We have a turning point in the ministry of Christ. In response to the Pharisees and, and, and scribes' uh, demand for a sign, and uh, Jesus said that he will give one sign and one sign only, the sign of himself. They would stumble over him or they would receive him, but they were getting one sign and one only. Then he warns his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then here he asks his disciples a pointed question. And then another. And then he sets out his, his plan for the church. The plan, his plan for his church. And then he gives them a somewhat puzzling, um, a puzzling instruction uh, of to not tell people who he is for that moment. It's very interesting and very... Uh, confusing there, but this is the confusing passage. It's confused many. There are many false theologies that have been built through the years, through the centuries, based upon a false understanding, a faulty understanding, or even twisting of these verses we look at today. So it's important that we understand what it says and what it means. It's important to how we confess Christ. It's important to how we live. It is important to how we operate as a church. So this is very important for us today. And, and if you think about this chapter again, it's all the work of Christ that has been building up to this point. All the, all the things that have been recorded so far in the Gospel of Matthew are, are building up to this, this time when one or more of his disciples would, would, would stand up boldly and freely accept Christ and freely confess his true identity, confess him as the Son of God, God himself. Not until that time could Christ really begin to build his church. Because the church was to be comprised of confessing believers. The confessing church confesses Christ. And Christ would, would use those confessing believers to build his church. And that confession had to come voluntarily. Inspired by the Father above, as Jesus said to Peter, a flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. What we have in this passage is the picture of the king of kings and his confessing church. Comes to a close with this important conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus does several things. As I mentioned, he he asks them a question. What do people say about me? Some of you are very concerned about what people say about you. This wasn't Jesus. Jesus wanted to know from the disciples what they had heard. He knew what they had heard. 
He wanted to go through the different options of what people were saying about Jesus. Interestingly, no one was saying he was the Christ. Then Jesus turns and asks, well, who do you say that I am? Because they're wrong. Who do you say I am? And then he lays out the plan for the church, and then he tells them not to tell, him, <laughs> tell anyone his true identity. And um, so let's go through this. Let's, let's see. Let's start at verse 13. He asks his disciples what people say about him, who they really think he is, who people are claiming that Christ is, the different opinions among people as to his identity. And the disciples uh, give those answers that some say John the Baptist. They thought that John the Baptist's head had been put back on and he had been reincarnated and showed up and now he was posing as Jesus. The faulty view, but some, many, held that view. And also some said um, one of the classical prophets like Jeremiah or Elijah. Uh, there were a lot of different views going on about what, who Jesus was. Just like today, a lot of people have views of, about Jesus, and, and many of them are wrong. Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi. It was a place named after Caesar. It was to honor Caesar, who was worshipped as a god. About 25 miles north of Galilee, at the foot of Mount Hermon, a beautiful setting. And he asked them these questions. Who do people say that I am? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or maybe one of their favorite prophets. Okay, well, maybe you could call those good guesses, but they even weren't those either. They, they, people didn't get it. They didn't see who Jesus truly was. They didn't see the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? What say you? What, what's your view? What's your opinion of, of me and my identity? Verse 16 Simon Peter boldly stands up and makes a reply. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Confessing Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Profession of faith. Son of man is what Jesus called himself. He said, who do they say the son of man is? And the Son of Man was not merely a description of his humanity. It was, a, it was a title for God himself. But the title for the Messiah, Son of Man, was one thing. But to confess Jesus as the Son of God was taking it up a couple notches, taking it to a higher level, calling him very God of very God. It was going higher still. It was saying that Jesus is more than a man. He is God himself. That Jesus has come, God incarnate. And he was the son of the living God. There's an Old Testament way of, of speaking of Jehovah God. In contrast to dead, dumb idols, he was the living God. The one true God. All through the Old Testament, uh, over and over again, people would respond, re reply, believing people would, re would, would refer to God as the living God, always in contrast to those false idols. It was the most significant thing someone could believe about Jesus, the most important thing that anyone needs to know about Jesus is that he is God. Very God of very God. 
What do you think about Jesus? The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. Who you think Jesus is. The value of his work on the cross for our sins hinges, depends on who he is. The person and work of Christ cannot be separated. They're linked. And so Peter is, is commended by Jesus. Jesus tells Peter that that confession can only come by revelation. You don't wake up one day and say, Jesus is God. You don't get that on your own. Someone just doesn't tell you and then you say, well, that person revealed it to me. In the same way that only the Son can reveal the Father, Matthew eleven twenty seven. so only the Father can reveal the Son. Here, verse 17. Matthew, as he's recording this gospel, contrasts his subject so effectively. God hides the mysteries of the kingdom to the wise, those who think they're wise, reveals them to children. That's what he said in chapter 11, verse 25. And here in this chapter, the Pharisees and and the Sadducees represent the wise from whom the mysteries of the kingdom are, are hidden. And here Peter is one of the little children who received the revelation from God. Verse 17, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't get it from yourself. You didn't get it from your dad. But my Father who is in heaven revealed this truth to you. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? You didn't get that on your own. You got it from God the Father. Jesus, by the way, up to this point, had not explicitly um, taught the full extent of his identity to his disciples. God the Father opened Peter's eyes to the truth about Jesus' true identity. It was by faith that he saw. Peter is confessing, by the way, not mere facts, but personal faith in Christ. When he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he wasn't just saying, by the way, that's what, that's what I academically think. No, this was an experiential uh, profession of personal faith in Christ that he was giving. And so what, what, what this paves the way for is for Jesus to, to lay out his plan for his church. This is the first time that Jesus refers to his church. The Gospels don't speak about his church. This is like the, the place that he, he deals with his church. First time in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to build his church. It says in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. And by the way, before we get into this verse, many, many people have been led astray by false interpretations of this verse. He says to him, I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. His church. Christ's church. And the gates of Hades, Jesus says, will not overpower it. It won't prevail against it. These words have been interpreted and misinterpreted down through the centuries. Most notably, the Roman Catholic Church has it completely wrong. They've always insisted that Peter was the rock that the church was built upon. It's interesting that in a very short time, Satan was to use Peter's voice to rebuke Jesus. You look down in verses 21 through 23, and 
Jesus, verse 21, began from that time to show his disciples that he was going to be mistreated and suffer and killed and on the third day be raised. Very clear about his work. Peter was very clear as the Father revealed it to him to to express Christ's person. And now Christ begins to profess and show his work that was going to be done on the cross. And what was Peter's response? He takes him aside begins to rebuke him. Said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So here's Peter, who just said, you are the Christ, meaning you're the promised one, you're the Messiah, you're the one sent to save the people from their sins. But then he turns and says, no, you're not going to do that. Not going to happen to you. Comfort to know, those of us who, who one moment are full of faith and the next moment we're faithless, it, it's a good thing to see Peter vacillating. Peter on shaky ground. Here he has the, the pinnacle of a profession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he turns around and rebukes Christ. And Jesus calls him Satan. You're not putting your mind on God's interests. You're putting your mind on man's interests. Back to verse 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church the Roman Catholic Church and others have said this means that Peter was the first pope. Not true. Who is the rock? It's important. We need to know who the rock is. Who's the rock? What's the rock? So the first view, the various views have been debated, but the first view is that Peter is the rock. It all goes through Peter. We take that one off the table right away. Peter's not the rock. Peter himself, we'll see in a moment, Peter himself didn't call himself the rock. But the second view is that Peter's confession of faith is the rock. That's a, um, a, that's a Protestant a viable view. That, that's a, the orthodox uh, view of an evangelical view of, of who the rock is. Peter's confession of faith is the rock. Well, what the rock is? P- Peter's confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Third view is that Christ himself is the rock. Let me just say this. This is puzzling. It is a puzzling, even between those two views that are viable views. A lot of people hold. It's hard to figure out. It's hard for me to figure out. I've come up with, a, with an answer that, that I, I, I believe it's both. <laughs> I, I believe it's, it's, it's that Jesus is, is the rock on which he is going to build his church and the fact that the professing, confessing uh, church will be professing that truth. The confession of faith. There's a play on words here. Peter, the word is Petros, it means small stone. Rock is the word Petra, and it means foundation stone. It means a huge boulder. It's the, it's the same word used in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Build your house upon the rock. He wasn't talking about Peter. There's this play on the, on, on, the, on the name Peter here, which means a stone, and Jesus says there is a Rock, a bigger stone that God is going to build his church upon. Think about Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation of the church. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. This is Peter preaching. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 The role of rock is Christ alone. Peter was not getting special favors, special treatment here. He was just bold. He was also wrong right away afterwards. He wasn't infallible. He was representative of the disciples. Here's what Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and... um, We'll start at verse 4. As you come to him, this is Peter, as you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A great definition of the church there. And then he goes on to say, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Not talking about himself. He's talking about Christ. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's the huge boulder. There's the huge rock ledge on which the church would be built. For some it would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they do do not obey the word as they're destined to do. Christ is the foundation. We, as Peter says, are living stones. Well, let's just admit this is a confusing verse in a confusing passage that has confused many. But let's ask the Lord, let's ask the Holy Spirit to unconfuse us, to give us wisdom, to help us understand his word. Christ is, He's going to build his church on himself and on our confession of faith in him. So it's not an either or, but it's a both and, that both the truth about who Jesus is and the fact that Peter said it is crucial, is important. Because the confessing church confesses Christ. The confessing church will continue to confess Christ. Believers will confess just like Peter did. There's more in this verse that's hard to understand. There's the gates of Hades, not o- overpowering the church, not prevailing against the church. And, and the most common understanding of this, this phrase is that this, these are attacks on the church by Satan and his demonic forces. That it's a promise that Satan will not succeed. Well, we do have a promise in Scripture that Satan will not succeed. But the other option, the other way to understand this verse is that it's speaking of something different than Satan's attacks on the church. The other option is is understanding the the, the phrase gates of Hades. That phrase is a Jewish way of of referring to death. When you would refer to the gates of Hades, you'd be referring to, to dying. And so the gates of Hades... Uh, is, 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 is Jesus saying death cannot stop the church either the martyrs deaths their blood spilled because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God or 
or other means, the death of his chosen ones, it won't stop the church. Not even death will be able to destroy the church Christ is building. Death cannot separate you from Christ, as Romans 8 tells us. The invincibility of the church is built on Christ because the church is built on Christ. That's why the church is invincible. That's why the gates of Hades, even death itself, cannot prevail against the church. Verse 19, another confusing verse. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You ever lose your keys? I lose my keys all the time. If they're not in my pocket, which they're not right now, I'm usually not knowing where they are. I'm asking my family, where's my keys? We just moved, and so uh, we had this uh, momentous occasion where we, we handed the keys of our old uh, um, residence to the new owners and, and then went and picked up the new keys from our new place. And, and it was a, a great, uh, exciting opportunity. And I'll tell you, I can't show up at my old house right now and try to get in the door. They will usher me off the property. But I can go to my new place and, and unlock the door with the key that I have if I can find it. <laughs> Jesus has given keys away. You don't want to lose that key. You don't set that key aside. Oh, I don't know where the gospel went. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Another, another phrase, another part of a verse that has gotten twisted out of all proportion by segments of Christianity. How do you understand? What are the keys and who's got the authority to use them and what's happening here? One primary view, and this is the one that, that the Catholic Church has perpetuated as well, stemming from their first understanding of who the rock is is that Peter and his successors have authority to include or exclude people from salvation. That they can pronounce who's saved or not. The other view is that that anyone who ministers the gospel of the grace of God in Christ has authority to announce forgiveness to those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ, who, who trust Christ for salvation. That when someone comes to faith in Christ, you say, on your profession of faith, on your repentance and belief, you are saved according to what the Word of God says. The heart you believe, with the mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord. It's more natural, more biblical, more more plausible to understand that Jesus' purpose as being to build His church not on, not on the disciple Peter, but on his confession of the true identity of Christ. The basis of the church is that Christ is confessed as Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is through the church that Christ intends to make his word and will known to the world. When the church speaks in Christ's name, the church then binds and looses, opens the gates of heaven to those who believe and closes them on those who do not. It's the idea of saying, you didn't believe, you're not saved. You do believe, you've got God's assurance. This is the testimony, 1 John says, that that what? That what? That God has given us eternal life. 
And this life is in his son. He who believes in the son has life. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. And the church comprised of confessing believers have the privilege from God to let people know those truths. This act of confession by Peter which gave Jesus the opportunity to proclaim the foundation of his church. Keys of the kingdom, the power of binding and loosing people from their sins. God does that. My chains are gone. My sins have been forgiven by Jesus, not by some person. Not by some, not by some person here on earth, by, by God himself. The keys signify the power to proclaim the gospel, the privilege to proclaim the gospel, which liberates people from sin. The rejection of the gospel leaves people bound in sin, without hope in the world. When you come to faith in Christ, your chains are gone. You are free in Christ. Let me say it again, too. The, the, this is an important passage on, on, on the ch- for the church. It has been a battleground for centuries. It has been a battleground. And the Roman Catholics have insisted that the church was built on Peter and that he alone was given the keys, the power to accept or excommunicate members of the church. But a careful reading of the passage A careful handling of the passage shows the impossibility of such an interpretation. Peter is the stone. Jesus is the rock. Peter is not the rock foundation on which the church was built. And Peter said it. We're living stones. We're being built into a spiritual house by God. That's the church. Peter certainly knew he was not the foundation of the church. The Christ whom Peter confessed was and is that foundation. An understanding of the last part of this verse helps us with the binding and loosing situation. You could read it this way, in this appropriate way, the right way to read this is this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound already in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. We don't control heaven. Heaven decrees and and we agree. Heaven controls the work of the church on earth. The church does not control heaven. We get to verse 20 and we're puzzled again. Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Now, he's already said that Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the truth about Jesus, the person of, of Christ, and the confessing church's confession of that truth is going to be what the church is built upon. And then he tells them, um, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Right after this beautiful confession of faith. Because here's what Jesus does next, verse 21. From that time on, he's, gonna tell, he's telling them of the coming crisis, of the cross. And... Peter then goes into his rebuke of Christ and Jesus rebukes him. And here's the idea. There would come a time when the gospel very soon would be proclaimed. Who took their stand boldly 
on the day of, after the day of Pentecost, who took their stand boldly, Peter, preaching boldly and authoritatively in the power of the Holy Spirit, professing Christ, confessing his name. But for that moment, Jesus said, wait, the cross isn't come yet. The cross was looming, but it wasn't right then, right there. So don't, don't tell them yet. There will come a day. There will come a time. And then, have at it. So what do we need to see about confessing Christ? What are the important things that we need to remember and grasp and build our lives upon as it relates to confessing Christ? Several things. Number one, let's remember that we, we need to see this. We, we are convinced of Christ's true identity because God reveals it to us. Let's make that clear. Confessing, admitting, acknowledging that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, is a non-negotiable bedrock of our faith. You have to have that if you're a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, that must be present. And the understanding you get to be able to make that confession comes from God alone. That's got to be clear. Jesus reveals the truth about God. He reveals his identity. Flesh and blood does not reveal it to us. Our Father in heaven does. What else? Number two, Christ uses us to build his church as we confess his true identity. That's what we see happening. Uh, I'm going to build my church upon who I am and what you said about me that is true, that the Father told you. Just as he did with Peter and the first disciples, Christ builds his church on our confession of his deity and saviorhood. It's the confession of all true believers. There's, there's some good truth for today there. All the disagreement, all the misunderstandings today of what the church means. It's a wonderful thing to have such a clear description, uh, a clear scriptural teaching on what the church really is and what her purpose is in the world. Those who truly confess Christ as Son of God and Savior who build their lives upon Him and carry the keys of the kingdom and proclaim the gospel are the ones who make up His church. And all the creeds and all the doctrines in the world cannot make a church. Only voluntary confession of Christ and obedience to His commands. That's the essence of the church. This should be a warning to all true believers that real church membership is not guaranteed by belonging to a particular church or denomination somewhere or having been baptized or having been born of Christian parents only a deliberate and responsible decision to confess Christ and obey him can make you a member of his church are you a member of Christ's church The other thing we need to know about this is that Christ's work will prevail because it depends on Him. We don't do this on our own. The work will prevail because it's of God. It's not our work. We're tools. We're instruments in God's hands. If anything of significance happens, it's because He willed it to happen. He is at work in us to will and do His good pleasure. And the question that should lead all of us to is, okay, so what's the significance then 
What's the difference that confessing Christ will make? In my life, in my, in my household, in places where I operate on a daily basis. Why should I confess Christ? Well, these, are great, these are great truths, but, but what, what, really, what really is going on here? Well, the first thing is this. What difference does confessing Christ make? It, confessing Christ grounds you and grows you in the faith. Your confession of Christ over and over again to God himself in your heart, in your household, in the places you live that grounds you in the faith. It's the idea like this. Good theology is a sign of being grounded in the faith. Believing truth from God's word is a sign of being grounded in the faith. It's a breeding ground for godly living. It's a place where all those things can germinate and, and lead to godly living. It doesn't guarantee godly living. But you can't have it without it. Bad theology is like a cesspool breeding ground for ungodliness. You can't stop with having good theology. You've got to be grounded in the faith and that got, it's got to lead to a life that goes along with it. That you, you, you live in line with the truth of the gospel. But you've got to have the gospel. You've got to have, you've got to have a true faith in Christ according to out how the Bible has portrayed him. And what happens? Growth in Christ happens. Sanctification happens. God making us Holy. We ought not to stay the same. We ought not to be, remain unchanged as we are exposed to the Word of God, as we live in Christ. Our identity is, is re- radically transformed. I was going to say rearranged. It is radically transformed in Christ. So we ought not to stay the same. We ought not to always be like that. We ought to be moving and growing in Christ as God does the work and we cooperate. And what does sanctification result in? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in a context, interestingly, of giving, of giving generously. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we see what sanctification results in based on a confession of faith. Paul is commending believers for generously supplying the needs of other believers. In verse 13, he says, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ, which led then to generosity of your contribution for them. But the submission flowed out of the confession of Christ. Confessing Christ grounds you. Preaching the gospel to yourself grounds you in the faith. Reminding yourself, reminding your people, reminding those you know that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Grounds you in the faith. You believe he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and you act upon that belief. Practically and generously and graciously and freely in every other good thing, good way. As you confess Christ and you get grounded in in the faith and you begin to grow, you will face all sorts of temptations, many of them, and all sorts of times of need. And you'll have plenty and you'll have want. You'll have uncertainty. 
And in the face of an uncertain future, you'll be able to have the sure and certain promises and presence of Christ who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And you'll be able to be convinced that all is well with your soul because Christ is holding you up. What else does confessing Christ do? What other difference does confessing Christ make? Well, confessing Christ builds God's kingdom. You want to build God's kingdom? You've got to confess Christ. The church will not be built on good intentions, but on Christ's intention to build his church upon the testimony of those he has saved through a clear preaching of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. A clear preaching of Christ crucified and risen and coming again and his people's glad surrender to that mission. Evidenced by a firm resolve to preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. Don't keep it a secret. You see, confessing Christ is eternally significant work. That's why it's so good. It's eternal. You want to do something that lasts for eternity? Confess Christ. It changes lives. You know what the gospel does? It kills you and then it brings you life. Jesus said, if you don't die to yourself, you can't follow me. In the, in the next passage, he says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, repudiate yourself, and take up your cross and follow me. If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Con- confessing Christ is eternally significant business. When you confess Christ boldly and unashamedly and freely and clearly present the facts of who Jesus really is. When you say he is the Christ, the son of the living God, you are not saying, hey, this is one option among all the options you have before you on the little smorgasbord you're looking at. You're not saying, hey, you know, I really, really respect your opinion. And here's one other thing to consider. You're not saying, hey, Jesus is one good choice among all the other good choices out there. That's not what you say when you say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're not buying, we're not selling here. We're not selling. We're not selling cars. We're not selling TVs. We're confessing. We're confessing absolute truth. We're not saying, oh, it might be a good option for you. No, we are saying he is Christ. We're not giving people an option here. We are declaring truth that God is God and Christ has appeared and calls all people to repent of their sins and follow Him. And when you confess Christ, here's what you're saying. That I need Christ and I am lost without Him and I have no hope in the world apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what you're saying when you say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is you're saying to anyone you confess that to is you are lost without Christ. There is no other name given among men by by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. You are saying that he is the exclusive Son of the living God. That he is the only Savior. And he is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration. He is worthy of my trust and obedience in everything. Look, gone are the days of the secret believer. Gone are the days of the bait and switch. Gone are the days of soft peddling the gospel. People do not respect bait and switch and soft pedal gospels. 
People do not want to hear a soft-pedaled gospel. The times in which we live for call for bold, unashamed, clear speaking of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and nothing less because people's eternities are at stake. Everything rests upon Jesus. Everything. And he always prevails. And he is worthy of all praise. Therefore, if you're a believer, have at it. Now, if you're like me, you've already thought about all the places you can't confess Christ. Let me tell you why I I guarantee you absolutely that this is so important. Because anything important is hard. Anything important is costly. And I know, just like you, all the places that I usually am afraid to confess Christ. Well, with my family, I can confess Christ. Before you, as I'm preaching, well, if I don't, I'm out of here. I'm going to confess Christ. But what about all the other realms of life? We're scattering in a few minutes. We're going out to confess Christ. The confessing church confesses Christ. Let me give you one example. Tim Tebow. People are making him a joke because he confesses Christ. Look it up. Tebow mic'd. Tim Tebow mic'd up. For nine minutes during an NFL game, they mic him up, and the whole time he is confessing Christ. Christ during an NFL game. The guy's getting reamed in the public arena for being an outspoken believer. There are parodies of him that are blasphemous. This is one guy that happens to have a platform, so he says, I'm going to confess Christ. I don't care what it costs me. People can think I'm a joke. Now think about your platform and how afraid we are to confess the name of Jesus Christ. My prayer for this church is that when we turn around and walk out these doors, we will do so with a far greater resolve than we have ever had in our entire lives to confess Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the one that convinces us of your true identity. Thank you, Lord, that the kingdom of heaven is opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel. That by proclaiming and openly witnessing to, the, to your, your person and work, when we receive the promise of the gospel by true faith, that our sins are really forgiven. That when people receive the promise of the gospel by faith, their sins are really forgiven them by you for the sake of Christ's merits and not our own. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to confess your name in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.